Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. I'm Ben Wilcox, and I'm thrilled that you've decided to join me today. Today marks the beginning of a new chapter for this channel. And if you've been with me from the beginning, you know that we've covered most of the New Testament, all of the Book of Mormon, and we just completed our study of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's been almost three years since I decided to start making these videos, and I can't wait to dive into a new book of Scripture with you in a new time period during this new year. And 2022 will be the year of the Old Testament. This particular video, you'll notice, is a bit longer. I usually like to keep these closer to an hour long. But I decided to include a section on introducing the Old Testament to your students, rather than just diving straight into Moses chapter 1. So grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. And the first thing I like to do at the beginning of any year of scripture study is to help my students get excited about studying that particular standard work. So this year, what do we have to look forward to in studying the Old Testament? In short, a lot. I love teaching the Old Testament. In fact, if you pressed me to narrow down which of the four years of scripture study that I enjoy teaching most, as difficult a decision as that is, I would probably have to say the Old Testament. Now, I enjoy teaching every year of Scripture. As my dad says, God never wrote a bad book. But for some reason, the Old Testament holds a special place in my heart. And maybe that's because a majority of members of the church don't know as much about it. The Old Testament is probably the most neglected book of Scripture in the church. Why is that? Well, it's kind of intimidating. First of all, it's so big. People take one look at the sheer bulk and already they're put off. And second, the language is a bit tougher to comprehend. It's the most archaic in its syntax. Third, the history is complex and confusing and the culture is a bit more foreign. You have all these kings and prophets and tribes and civilizations, Assyria, Babylon, Samaria, Egypt, Persia, Canaanites, Philistines, Edomites, Moabites. It's all a little overwhelming. Plus, I admit that some of the books that we find in the Old Testament are a bit more tedious to get through. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Chronicles. Although I will say that each of those books have powerful and worthwhile lessons in them too. But they're definitely a tougher read than, say, First Nephi or Alma or Matthew, or the Doctrine and Covenants. Plus, you've got Isaiah in there, which we know a lot of people struggle with. And on top of that, all those minor prophets in there that some people have never even heard of, and they think you're making them up. Who the heck is Habakkuk, or Nahum, or Zephaniah? Well, we're going to get to know these people this year, because they all have incredibly relevant and significant things to teach us. So, In terms of length, language, culture, and complexity, the Old Testament can be an intimidating study prospect. And maybe that's part of the reason I enjoy teaching it so much. Students are expecting it to be hard or boring or obsolete. And then they're surprised to see, though difficult, how relevant and exciting it is. It's fun to introduce people to something new. Now, I love teaching the Book of Mormon and the New Testament and church history. 
But most members are fairly familiar with those stories. They have been since primary. And when I teach seminary, almost all my students already know that Nephi is going to make it to the promised land on their boat. They already know that Ammon is going to defend the king's flocks by cutting off the arms of the robbers. They know that the stripling warriors are all going to survive. They know that Jesus is going to walk on the water and rescue his apostles from the storm, and that Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. But when you start to teach them the story of Gideon and his 300 men, or Jonathan and his armor-bearer, or Elijah and the priests of Baal, or Hezekiah, or Naaman, or Nehemiah, they're on the edges of their seat wondering, what's going to happen next? And you get to experience that with them. Even the stories they think they know, most have never actually read from the Old Testament itself. They're surprised to see how things actually play out. They've seen the movie, but they haven't read the book. They think they know the story of Noah and the ark, or David and Goliath, or Jonah and the whale, but they're surprised to see how the scriptures actually describe those things. Many are surprised to find out that Esau is not as bad a character as they expected him to be, and that Samson is not as good a character as they thought he was. And on top of all of that, a lot of the stories in the Old Testament are really just kind of fun. I mean, who can't help but smile at the story of Balaam and his talking donkey, Elijah and his showdown with the priests of Baal? Micaiah and his sarcastic confrontation with King Ahab, or Daniel playing with ferocious lions as if they were kittens. Fantastic, miraculous, and fascinating stories. And I can't wait to experience them with you. And women, the Old Testament is your book. No other standard work has more female role models than the Old Testament. I mean, this book of the patriarchs is actually the least patriarchal. You have the wisdom of Eve in the Garden of Eden, the faith of Sarah as she bears a child at age 90, Deborah, who inspires an army to fight for God, Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, who's the only citizen that repents and then later becomes an Israelite princess. You've got the loyalty and charity of Ruth and the courage of Esther. Then the widow of Zarephath, Hannah, the daughters of Oneida and the daughters of Zelophehad, Rebecca, Rachel, Abigail, Miriam. As a daughter of Zion, Old Testament year may be your most inspiring as far as female heroes go. So whether you're teaching or studying the Old Testament this year, I hope you're excited. I know that I am. Plus, with the scheduling changes in the seminary curriculum over the past few years, It's actually been six years since I've been able to teach the Old Testament, and I have been longing for this experience for quite some time now. So an activity that I do with my students at the beginning of the year is this Old Testament trivia activity that will hopefully help pique their curiosity and whet their appetite for their study of the Old Testament. And I'll have to admit that this focuses more on some of the Uh, more entertaining and amusing aspects and stories of the Old Testament. At least with teenagers, it seems to get them interested and excited to study. It has a few different sections to it, and you could do it either as a handout 
and have them go through all the questions on their own and then correct it together as a class and see who got the highest score. Or you could do it with them with the questions up on the screen and just have them guess what they think the answers are. Or maybe you could make it a game and divide them into teams and see which team gets the most answers correct. Either way, I think they'll have fun with it. So the first section of questions we'll call, who said it? So they've got to guess who said these things. So first, which great lawgiver gave us all great health advice by specifically instructing that we should not eat bats, pelicans, weasels, chameleons, eagles, camels, ferrets, storks, or tortoises? However, if you ever get the craving for a nice beetle, a roebuck, or a grasshopper, bon appetit, it's all right with God. And the answer is Moses. That's a, that's a part of the law of Moses. Number two, who is quoted as saying the following to his mother? Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. And the answer is Jacob, Jacob and Esau. And then the next one, the wisest of all men in the Old Testament once made this comment. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. And the answer is Solomon. But to be fair, it's also true that it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry man. It, it works both ways, doesn't it? All right, the next section is just a simple multiple choice section. Which item is correct? Which of the following is not something that Ezekiel did to teach the people of Jerusalem? A, made bread, baked it with cow dung, and then ate it in front of everyone. B, jumped up and down in the central square of the city like a frog for hours. C, lied down on his left side for 390 days, and then on his right side for 40. Or D, didn't cry or mourn when his wife died. And the answer is B. He did not jump up and down like a frog. But he did do each of those other things. Very interesting teacher, Ezekiel. All right, next. What happened when the Philistines captured the ark from the Israelites? A, they tried to open it and they melted. B, their pagan temples crumbled to the ground. C, they got hemorrhoids. Or D, they fell into a deep sleep until the Israelites could recover the ark. And the surprising answer to this one is C, they got hemorrhoids. Interesting curse, right? Next, what special test did the Israelites give to those wishing to enter its borders to verify that they were of the house of Israel? A, they had them say the word shibboleth because only an Israelite could pronounce it correctly. B, they asked them to demonstrate the Shalom Bet Lahaim dance, a Hebrew dance performed at weddings. C, they had to recite their genealogy all the way back to Abraham. Or D, they had to quote the entire book of Leviticus. And the answer is A. They had them say the word shibboleth because it was really difficult to say if you weren't a native speaker of Hebrew. 
Kind of like there are some sounds in Portuguese or Spanish or, or other languages that are hard for a, a native English speaker to pronounce correctly. All right, next. When Saul prayed to the Lord and the Lord didn't answer because of Saul's wickedness, he resorted to asking a witch from this place. A. Tatooine B. Endor C. Dagobah or D. Naboo And the answer is B. The witch of Endor. And yes, that is a biblical place. All right, our next section. Now, the Old Testament is also a bit more of an intense book when it comes to war and conflict. So the next challenge is entitled, How Did They Die? So, so choose the scenario that you think describes the actual demise of these wicked people. So first, Absalom. A. His long flowing hair got tangled on a low branch, hanging him there until his enemies found him and dispatched him. B. He fell backwards off a cliff while fighting with the Philistines. Or C. He was crushed by his own idol while carving it. And the answer is A. His hair got tangled in a low branch, and then he was killed when his enemies found him. Right next, Jezebel. A. Fire from heaven came down and consumed her. B. A crack in the earth opened up and swallowed her whole. Or C. She was thrown out of a window by her own servants and eaten by dogs. And the answer is C. Thrown out of the window by her servants and and eaten. Right next, Abimelech. A. He was trampled by a herd of stampeding camels. B. He was hit in the head by a piece of falling kitchenware. Or C. He was thrown into a vat of boiling hot olive oil. And the answer is B. Hit in the head by a piece of falling kitchenware. Uh, He's attacking a city and a woman from the city throws a millstone down from the wall and it, it lands on him. All right, next. Our next section will give you three different stories. Two of them I made up. That you've got to determine which one is the true story from the Old Testament. So here we go. One day, as Elisha the prophet was walking through the land of Israel, a group of teenagers came by and started making fun of him for being bald. And they taunted him, calling him a bald head. Elisha responded by turning around and shaking his head at the youths. Suddenly, from out of nowhere, a huge bear came running out of the woods, attacking the young men and devouring them. Apparently, they had all learned a painful lesson. Never mock a prophet. Our next story. Malachias was a prophet during the Babylonian Empire. One day, while walking the streets of Susa, he heard a voice calling his name from an alleyway. As Malachias entered the alley, he was startled to find that the voice was not coming from a person, but from a sheep. The sheep told him that his calling was to prophesy to the people of Japheth by telling them that they were as sheep without a shepherd and needed to turn again to the God of Israel. It just goes to show that in the Old Testament, the Lord often uses unconventional means to teach his people. Or is it this third story? 
Ahaziah was a powerful but wicked Judean king. The Lord called on his prophet Oded to confront the king. Oded was a very short, old, and frail man, while Ahaziah was strong, young, and mighty. The Lord commanded Oded to approach the king with a sword and demand that he repent or perish. The king's guards did nothing, not expecting this frail old man to be a threat. The king simply laughed and drew his own sword, challenging Oded to a fight to the death. As the king approached, Oded unexpectedly sprang forward and fought with such incredible speed and power and skill that he swiftly killed the wicked king to everyone's great surprise. So, which one of those stories is the true one? The answer is the first one. The first one about Elisha and the bear. That really did happen. And we'll cover that story later in the year. All right, our final section. The Old Testament is most known for what I would call the and stories. See if you can fill in the blanks of these and stories. So you've got Adam and Eve, Noah and the ark, Jonah and the whale, David and Goliath, Samson and Delilah, Joseph and the coat of many colors, or the amazing technicolor dream coat, Daniel and the lion's den, Cain and Abel. And then I usually like to add that this year they're going to be introduced to a lot of other ands that they may not be as familiar with. We'll talk about Jacob and Esau, Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, Hezekiah and Rabshakeh, Gideon and the Midianites, Nehemiah and the walls of Jerusalem, Balaam and the talking donkey, and many, many more. So the truth that I like to emphasize with this introduction is the Old Testament will teach you, inspire you, warn you, and fascinate you if you are willing to dig deep into its contents. And so to liken the scriptures, what is your study goal this year in the Old Testament? And I've got some suggestions for you. Maybe your goal will be to read all the suggested readings from the manual. There's a note about the reading schedule at the beginning of the Come, Follow Me manual that tells you that this year's study doesn't include every book and chapter of the Old Testament, only selected portions. And this makes the reading schedule a bit more manageable for somebody who's trying to study the whole thing in just one year. It makes it more the length similar to the length of the Book of Mormon. Or you may decide to read the entire text of the Old Testament. It's a worthy goal in my mind, and I think everybody should do that at least once in their life, even the tough parts. Maybe your goal will be to mark something in your scriptures every time you study, or to keep a study journal, or to really dig deep every time you study. Whatever you do, have a goal in mind that you know will help keep you motivated and challenged throughout the year. 
Well, as I've said, there is so much to look forward to in this year's study. The poetic symbolism of Isaiah, the profoundly deep visions of Moses and Abraham and Enoch, the fantastic miracles of the Exodus. We're going to see seas part, giants fall to shepherds, and the faithful walk through fiery furnaces unsinged. We'll study both dramatic stories of faith and simple stories of faith. We'll learn from kings and prophets and priests and shepherds and harlots and the old and the young. We'll learn lessons from both the righteous and the wicked. If you've never read the Old Testament before, I want to invite you to do that this year, to give this course of study your due attention and diligence. If you've read the Book of Mormon 20 times and you've studied the life of Christ and you've been deeply through the Doctrine and Covenants this past year, but you've never given much attention to the Old Testament, I hope you'll reconsider your opinion of its value. Keep the following in mind. When Nephi and his brothers were sent back to Jerusalem for the plates of brass, a record that was so important it was worth traveling all that way and giving away all their worldly possessions and risking their lives to get it? What record was on the plates of brass? The Old Testament, or at least portions of it. When they arrive back at camp with the plates, Nephi says something about them. He says, And we had obtained the records which the Lord had commanded us, and searched them, and found that they were desirable, yea, even of great worth unto us insomuch that we could preserve the commandments of the Lord unto our children. Wherefore, it was wisdom in the Lord that we should carry them with us as we journeyed in the wilderness towards the land of promise. So what did we just learn about the Old Testament? It's desirable. It's of great worth. It preserves the commandments. It's wisdom that we carry the Old Testament with us as we make our journey towards our promised land. So when Nephi encourages us to liken the scriptures, when he says, feast upon the words of Christ, when he speaks of holding fast to the iron rod of God's word, what book of scripture was he referring to or, or thinking about? The Old Testament. It can be our iron rod this year. No wonder he quotes Isaiah so much. Nephi loved the Old Testament. Also, when Jesus speaks of the scriptures, when he defends himself against temptation by saying the words, it is written, or when he prophesies about himself in the synagogue, when he says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. What scriptures was Jesus referring to? The Old Testament. He quoted it frequently and found inspiration and strength in it. And remember, after the resurrection, when he appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says that he opened up the scriptures and taught them about him, about his mission and his purpose. What book of scripture must he have been teaching from? The Old Testament. So although we don't find the name Jesus Christ anywhere in the Old Testament, we know that it testifies of him and teaches us about him and leads us to him. We just get to know him by a bit of a different name, Jehovah. If the New Testament is the testament of the actual life and mortal teachings of Jesus Christ, 
and the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ, and the Doctrine and Covenants is our testament of Jesus Christ, then the Old Testament is the first testament of Jesus Christ. If you know your Old Testament, your comprehension and appreciation of the Book of Mormon will increase. Your understanding of the teachings of Christ in the New Testament will be illuminated. Your grasp of the Doctrine and Covenants and church history will be amplified. So together, let's dig deep into this phenomenal book of Scripture this year. Something that may surprise you as you begin to deeply study this book is just how relevant it is to our day. Though these stories come from thousands of years ago, they're as applicable to the year 2022 AD as they were to the year 2022 BC. The people of the Old Testament will teach you things if you're just willing to listen to them. Have you ever felt like even though you were doing everything you could to do what was right, only wrong things happened to you? Even though you remained faithful to your beliefs, only negative consequences came? Well, Joseph of Egypt and Job have something to teach you this year. Have you ever felt like the world around you was just getting worse and worse and you needed a refuge from it all? Something to help you rise above the flood of evil surrounding you. Noah has something to teach you. Have you ever had trouble in your family or you felt like it was dysfunctional? Jacob has something to teach you. Have you ever felt like God was testing you, that he was asking you to do something or give something that seemed almost impossible to give? Moses and Gideon and Abraham and Isaac have something to teach you. Have you ever felt surrounded on all sides by temptation or your enemies or your trials and you didn't know how on earth you were ever going to escape? Hezekiah has something to teach you. Have you ever had a calling that you just didn't want to accept? Jonah has something to teach you. Have you ever had to stand up for what's right when everybody else around you seemed to be bowing down to the worldly wrong? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel have something to teach you. Do you want to know how to be a more loyal friend? Jonathan has something to teach you. Do you want to come to know Christ on a more deeply personal level? Give Isaiah a chance. Listen to them. Their voices whisper to us from the dust, showing us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he can do these marvelous things for them, he will most certainly do the same for us. And so, I like to end with something that Joseph Smith said about the Old Testament. He said that God's own handwriting is in this sacred volume, and he who reads it oftenest will like it best. Well, I believe that those who read the Old Testament often and deeply will like it best. And I hope that you not only come to like it, but love it as well. All right. Well, I hope I've gotten you excited about studying the Old Testament. And one final activity that you might want to walk your students through at the beginning of your study of the Old Testament is a quick marking activity with the table of contents. It may help your students to understand the organization of the Old Testament because it's not necessarily in chronological order. It's arranged into different sections. 
So here's how you break it down. I have my students mark and label these sections in four different colors. So you have the first five books of the Bible. And these books are referred to as the law. They're written by Moses and they contain an account of the earth's history from the time of the creation down to the death of Moses. They also contain what we call the law of Moses, which was the Lord's religious instructions for his people that God wanted them to live from the time of Moses down to the mortal ministry of Christ. And these five books are sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch or the Torah. Then we have the historical books. And these extend from Joshua to Esther and are basically chronological in their retelling of ancient Hebrew history. And then you have the poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. These are written in more of a poetic style, and they contain some of the wisdom and musical texts of Old Testament people. And finally, you have the prophets. And each book contains the writings of the prophet whose name the book bears. You have the writings and the prophecies of prophets from both the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And that should give your students a good overview of the makeup of the Old Testament. And it's also important that you note that the Pearl of Great Price has some additional books of Scripture that coincide with our study of the Old Testament. There you're going to find the books of Moses and Abraham, too. So now, to get into the actual Scriptures themselves. I believe I've shared this activity with you once before, but I believe that it's a good place to remind you of an important Scripture study skill. I like to do this little activity at the beginning of a study of any of the standard works. There's a habit that I want all of my students to get into, and that is scripture marking. Scripture marking has so many benefits. Here are a few of the biggest. Engagement. Studying with a marking pencil in your hand engages your mind and heart more than if you just sat there and read it. It gives you something to actively look for and pay attention to. And I've always found that the Spirit is much more willing to teach me when I have a marking pencil in my hand. Next, enduring. Marking your scriptures leaves a permanent record of our efforts and our insights. Discussions will be forgotten. Handouts thrown away or lost. Thoughts will fade. But what we mark and write in our scriptures can last forever. Each time we read that chapter in the future, we'll be reminded of what the Spirit taught us in the past. And then the Spirit can build on that prior knowledge. And then finally, excitement. Honestly, scripture marking is fun, at least to me. It makes the study experience more exciting as you look for things to mark. And then it's kind of fun to flip back through your scriptures and see all the things that you've learned and marked in the past. So engagement, enduring, and excitement. Three great reasons to mark your scriptures. So to introduce that idea, I like to do the following little icebreaker. With my students at the beginning of the year, I'll bring out a little treasure box that I have. And I tell them that I have something for them inside it that's going to help them at the final judgment. And if they'd be interested in knowing what it was. And then with great fanfare, I slowly open the lid to reveal a box full of colored pencils. And I pull one of them out and I hold it up like it's a precious artifact. 
And I say that this item is going to bless them at the final judgment because the Lord is going to only ask them one question. He'll say, can I see your scriptures? And you'll say, okay, here they are, Lord. Now, if he opens your scriptures and he sees markings all over them, perhaps he'll say, hmm, it's apparent that you've spent a lot of time studying my word. And if you've spent a lot of time studying my word, that suggests that you've spent a lot of time living my word. Then he'll turn to the side and point to the pearly gates of heaven and say, come on in, you made it. On the other hand, if you hand him your scriptures and he looks at them and blows the dust off of them and they look brand new and the pages are still stuck together, he may leaf through them thoughtfully and say, hmm, these look like a really nice set of scriptures. They look almost brand new. I'm afraid it doesn't look like you've spent much time studying my words. And if you haven't spent much time studying my words, there's a really good chance that you haven't spent much time living my words. I'm so sorry. And he'll reach out, pull the cord, the trap door will open, and whoosh, off you slide to purgatory. Now, as you're telling this, you do this all very facetiously. And I suggest you ham it up a bit because I don't really think that's the way that the judgment's going to be. But I do believe that there's a hint of truth to it. I do believe that the way we valued his words in our lives is going to have a bearing on how we're judged. And so you tell them to help them avoid that negative fate. You're going to give them a colored pencil of their own. And I promise them that if they study with a marking pencil in their hand, that they're going to get so much more out of it. You're going to find that you get more insight and inspiration when you study this way because you're showing the spirit that you're ready and that you're willing to learn. So I encourage all of you to study the Old Testament this year with a marking pencil in your hand. A number of people have asked me over the years what I like to use to mark my scriptures. And really, any set of colored pencils will do. My favorite marking pencil is this kind of fancy eight-in-one colors mechanical pencil that's really convenient and fun, but it's a bit on the expensive side. I'll put some links in the video description if anyone is interested in that. But like I said, a, a box of just regular Crayola or any colored pencils will do just fine. And so now to give you some practice with that skill, we're going to do a marking activity in our very first chapter of the year. Moses chapter 1. And what an amazing chapter it is. I often refer to Moses chapter 1 as the introduction to all scripture. And if you wanted to start the scriptures from the very beginning, this is where you'd go. Because look at Moses chapter 2. What's the subject matter? The creation. It's an account of what we find in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, in that verse, you'll find the phrase, in the beginning, which is the way the Bible begins. So Moses chapter 1 was meant to come before Genesis 1, making it the introduction to all scripture. The chapter relates a vision and a conversation that Moses has with God. And at one point in the vision, 
God leaves Moses and Satan appears to tempt him. There's this, this confrontation. And in the end, Moses commands Satan to depart. And then God returns, gives Moses another vision of all his creations, and then teaches him his purpose. When or where this vision takes place, we're not exactly sure. The final verse tells us that the name of the mountain that this vision occurred on will not be known among the children of men. So it's probably not Sinai. But we can surmise that this is pre-Exodus because verse 26 has God telling Moses that he will yet deliver his people from bondage. So as you study Moses 1, I want you to see Moses as representative of all of us and to look for what God wants us to know about him, God, ourselves, Satan, and our purpose in life. So as a marking activity, you can send your students into Moses chapter 1, verses 1 through 23, and assign them as a number 1, a number 2, or a number 3. Number 1s are going to mark everything they learn about God from those verses. 2s are going to mark everything they learn about ourselves through the character of Moses. What do we learn about humanity or mortals? And then number threes are going to mark everything they learn about defeating Satan and temptation. So they're going to focus a bit more on the uh, confrontation with Satan part. So after you've given them enough time to read those verses, allow them to share what they found. And you can always go over anything significant that you feel they left out when everybody is done sharing. So let me go over a few of the things that they might find. And keep in mind that these are just some of the things that they might mark. They may find a lot of other things that I don't cover here. So first, what do we learn about God? From verse 1, he wants to communicate with us. The words of God which he spake unto Moses. So God speaks. He's involved in the life of man. From verse 2, he has a body in the form of a man. Moses spoke to him face to face. Also from verse 2, he's glorious. In fact, he's so glorious that according to verse 5, no man can behold all my glory and afterwards remain in the flesh on the earth. So that's some serious glory there. From verse 3, he's almighty. Also, he's eternal or endless. From verse 4, we find out that he is a creator or the creator. From verse 6, we find that he is going to send a savior to us. That he's the only God and that he is all-knowing. And then I love this. The Lord says, Behold this one thing I show unto thee. So Moses, I'm just going to show you one thing here. But what is that one thing? The entire world and everyone on it. Just that one thing. So what could be the Lord's purpose here? Imagine how you might feel after seeing all of that. You'd probably feel pretty small, wouldn't you? And that's exactly how Moses feels after that vision. He, he falls to the earth and he comes to a conclusion down in verse 10. And he says, Now for this cause, I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. And remember that Moses came from the background of being raised in Egypt a place that truly manifested the great things that man could do. 
And I guess that begs the question, is Moses's conclusion correct? Is man nothing? To keep that question in mind as we, we study here. In one sense, I would say, yes, that is an important truth for us to keep in mind. And that should keep us humble. In the grand scheme of things, the works of man are nothing. Look at what's left of all the great civilizations of Earth's history. It's nothing but ruins. It's usually quite dangerous to start thinking you're something or to think too much of yourself. But God's going to teach Moses some more things about man. And by the end, maybe we'll come to a different conclusion about ourselves. So what other things does God want us to know about ourselves through the character of Moses? So verse 4, he says to him, Thou art my son. So we just learned that we are children of God. We sing, I am a child of God, and we mean it. From verse 6, we have a work to do on this earth. There is purpose to our lives, not just for Moses, but all of us. Life is not meaningless. We've got something to accomplish here. And then, after Moses is given the vision of all creation, something happens. And the presence of God withdrew from Moses, that his glory was not upon Moses. And Moses was left unto himself. And as he was left unto himself, he fell into the earth. Now, isn't that the condition of all of us here in mortality? We don't currently enjoy the full glory of God upon us. We are withdrawn from his presence. We are, in a sense, left to ourselves on this earth. And in that state, who comes to us? Verse 12, here comes Satan tempting him, tempting him to worship him. And that's something that we learn about ourselves. We are going to be tempted while on this earth. That's a part of our mortal test. And 13, but we have been created in the similitude of God's only begotten. There's something divine in each one of us. And then remember back in verse 9 where we saw the presence of God withdraw from Moses? Well, that wasn't 100% accurate. We learn in verse 15 that the Spirit of God had not altogether withdrawn from him. So we learn that God doesn't abandon us completely while on this earth. We're not alone. God sends a portion of his Spirit to help us and to strengthen us. So now verses 12 through 23 will help us to know how to conquer Satan and his temptations. See if you can find how Moses does it. What does Moses do to resist temptation and get Satan out of his life? And I see at least four strategies here. Number one, know who you are. From verse 13, And it came to pass that Moses looked upon Satan and said, Who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God, in the similitude of his only begotten. So Moses knows his divine identity, potential, and worth. Satan is always going to try and take that away from us. In verse 12, notice what Satan calls Moses. He calls him son of man. Contrast that with how God addressed him as a son of God. And Moses responds with such confidence. I love it. Who art thou? Behold, I am a son of God. 
And wouldn't that be great if we could respond to all temptation in that way? Who are you to ask me to lie, to steal, to cheat, to disobey God? These actions are beneath me. They're beneath my potential. I'm a child of God. Don't try to make me feel less than what I am. And then I love Moses' boldness here. He continues, And where is thy glory that I should worship thee? For behold, I could not look upon God except his glory should come upon me, and I were transfigured before him. But I can look upon thee in the natural man. Is it not so, surely? And he's so confident. He's almost provoking him. He's like, hey, why should I worship you? To see God, I actually had to be transfigured. I had to have a physical change happen to my body just so that I could look at him, that his glory was so great. But I can look at you, no problem. I don't even need sunglasses. Is it not so, surely? So maybe a little tinge of sarcasm there. So like your parents used to tell you, remember who you are and what you stand for. Prophets have continually taught us that we have been reserved for the last days for a special purpose. If we keep that in mind and aspire to live up to that calling, it will keep us strong in the face of the adversary. A second strategy for stopping Satan. Look at verses 15 and 18. Moses says, Blessed be the name of my God, for his spirit hath not altogether withdrawn from me. Or else, where is thy glory? For it is darkness unto me, and I can judge between thee and God. For God said unto me, Worship God, for him only shalt thou serve. It's important for us to know the difference between light and dark. And perhaps that was the purpose of this vision all along, to help Moses see and experience the difference between the glory of God and the darkness of Satan. The contrast would have been so evident after this encounter. The adversary is always trying to obscure that line, making evil look good and good look evil. Moses was able to distinguish the difference because he had just had an amazing experience with the light and glory of God. In verse 18, he says, For his glory has been upon me, wherefore I can judge between him and thee. We need to make sure that we do the same and do all we can to fill our lives with the light of God. To seek after those things which are virtuous, lovely, praiseworthy, and of good report. With the books we read, the music we listen to, the movies we watch, the language we use. Keep your lives filled with light. It's part of the reason for why we have church and scripture study and family time and temple worship. It's also why... uh, a lot of people begin to lose their faith when they stop doing those things. When the things of the world and darkness approach and tempt us to worship them, if we filled our lives with light, we will instinctively reject them because we'll know the difference. We can judge between Satan and God. I mean, what a contrast this section draws between the two. Look at the emotions that Satan displays in those first 23 verses. Pride, anger, demandingness, misery. Why would we want to worship a being like that when we have the light and mercy and glory of God as an alternative? A third strategy from verse 18. Moses boldly tells Satan that he will not cease to call upon God and commands Satan to depart hence. 
Of course, the adversary is not pleased with Moses' resolve, and he throws a bit of a temper tantrum. You can imagine how terrifying of an experience that must have been. And now when Moses had said these words, Satan cried with a loud voice and ranted upon the earth and commanded, saying, I am the only begotten. Worship me. Ah, you really get a sense of Satan's pride and his jealousy there. And it came to pass that Moses began to fear exceedingly. No kidding. And as he began to fear, he saw the bitterness of hell. Nevertheless, calling upon God, he received strength, and he commanded, saying, Depart from me, Satan, for this one God only will I worship, which is the God of glory. And now Satan began to tremble, and the earth shook, and Moses received strength, and called upon God, saying, In the name of the only begotten, depart hence, Satan. And it came to pass that Satan cried with a loud voice, with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and he departed hence even from the presence of Moses, that he beheld him not. Did you notice what Moses did to receive strength in that situation? He called upon God multiple times. And each time he did it, he got stronger and stronger. He received strength. We can do the same. When you find yourself afraid, when you find yourself tempted, when the bitterness of hell is upon us, Call upon God in prayer for strength, and it will come. A fourth strategy. We've also learned something significant about the adversary from these verses, haven't we? How many times did Moses have to tell Satan to depart? Let's see. Verse 16, verse 18, verse 20, and verse 21. Four times he has to say it. What does that teach us? Satan is persistent. So what's going to be our strategy for defeating that persistence? We have to be persistent ourselves. We're going to have to work really hard to keep him out of our lives. He doesn't give up easily. And we'll always have to be on our guard. And we know that this isn't the only time that Satan's going to try and stop Moses. Just as God withdraws and returns, so will the adversary. Our lives are a constant shifting between those two presences. Hopefully, we find ourselves more often in the presence of the godly and that we maintain our strength and identity and the spirit through the darker times. But we can know that even in those dark times, that God is with us. His spirit will not altogether withdraw from us. So after you've completed that activity, I usually just like to summarize the last verses of the chapter and and walk my students through it together. So, after that, Moses is once again shown a vision of the glory of God's creation. And Moses sees every particle of the earth and every soul. And this prompts two questions in Moses, in verse 30. Tell me, I pray thee, why these things are so, and by what thou madest them. Now, the first question God is going to deflect for a short time. He's not prepared to answer Moses quite yet on that why or his purpose. He says, for mine own purpose have I made these things. But he does answer Moses' second question. Verse 32 and 33. And by the word of my power have I created them, which is mine only begotten son, who is full of grace and truth. And worlds without number have I created. 
and I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. So Moses, this world and these people that you're seeing, I've made countless numbers of other worlds and individuals just like this one. I created them by the word of my power, through my beloved son, my only begotten. And as Moses gazes upon all these worlds and all these people, by what God says next, you get a sense of Moses' reaction to seeing all of that. Again, how must he be feeling? It must have been overwhelming. The sheer mass and number of God's creation must have caused Moses' mind to wonder, how do you keep track of it all? There's so much. And perhaps Moses reverts back to his first conclusion. Man is nothing. I'm just a speck in the midst of a sea of creation. How could I matter in light of all of that? Maybe you felt that way. When you look up at the night sky and see the universe in all its vastness and immensity, when you find yourself in a large crowd of people, when you realize that you are just one of seven billion on the earth, when you feel lonely or forgotten by the rest of the world, remember what God says here at the end of Moses chapter 1. And innumerable are they unto man. But all things are numbered unto me, for they are mine, and I know them. Yes, Moses, you are just one of many. This world upon which you stand is just one of many. But I'm talking to you, aren't I? I'm giving you this vision at this time. I know you by name. I have a work for you to do. This chapter is yet another evidence that we worship a one-by-one God. We belong to him. We're numbered to him. As impossible as it is for us to comprehend this kind of universal awareness and presence and love, it's there. Have you felt it? I know I have. I know it's real. And now God is ready to answer Moses' first question, the, uh, why do you do this? What's your purpose? And I think you all know what this is leading up to. We've been building and building to verse 39 in a type of heavenly crescendo. And what is the climactic revelation? Why does God create so much? For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So Moses, this is what I do. This is my work. I create souls, and I create worlds for those souls to live on. And my goal and my purpose for every single one of them is to bring to pass their immortality and their eternal life. I want them to be like me, I want my children to have and experience all that I have. And not only is this my work, it's my glory. I love what I do. I love my job. I love being a father. So no, Moses, your prior conclusion was wrong. Man is not nothing. Man is everything.
And I want you to know that you are a part of that everything. You matter to God. So the truth. We are all children of a loving, all-knowing, all-powerful Heavenly Father, and we have a work to do. Satan will tempt us in this life, but we can defeat him when we remember our divine identity, when we fill our lives with light, when we call upon God for strength, and when we are persistent in resisting him. God's work and glory is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. Can you see why this is the introduction to all scripture? Those have got to be some of the most important and basic truths of mortality that you can teach. So to liken the scriptures, ask your students to pick at least one of the following questions to consider or to write about in their study journal or to share with the class. Why do you feel it's important that we know we are children of God? Have any of Moses' strategies ever helped you to resist temptation? And how? Or have you ever had an experience that helped you to know that God was aware of you? Please share. I just love Moses chapter 1. It's a powerful introduction to the scriptures and the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. We've just learned some of the most fundamental things that we need to know about our lives here on earth. We've learned who God is who we are, and who the adversary is, and how to defeat him. I know that God can help you to defeat Satan in this life, just as he did Moses, and you can emerge victorious too. Remember God's purpose for you. He wants to give you immortality. But more importantly, he wants to make you like he is. He wants to give you eternal life. As we study the Old Testament this year, Keep the lessons of Moses chapter 1 in mind. We are everything to God, and you mean everything to him. All right, big chapters here. As an icebreaker for Abraham 3 now, I usually like to show my students some images of space and ask them if they've ever had a chance to look through a telescope before. Possible object lesson here. If you have a telescope or access to one, bring it into class and set it up in the front of the room. You can then ask them what kinds of things they've been able to see through a telescope. In one year, I bought my son a telescope for Christmas, and we were fascinated looking at the craters of the moon and the small red sphere of Mars. And we were even able to find Jupiter surrounded by these tiny little points of light, which were its moons. Looking into the depths of space can really be a spellbinding experience. Well, God's going to use space as an object lesson to teach both Abraham and all of us some important truths about our lives. This is the grand universal object lesson that the night sky has to teach us. The first 17 verses of Abraham 3 introduce us to the object lesson, while the remaining verses teach the lesson. So we could label the first section Astronomy 101, and then the second section we can label Religion 101. So first, Astronomy 101. Without any prior knowledge or study of Abraham 3, it's really difficult to interpret this on your own without some help. So what I do is give my students the following handout, 
and then we walk through this chapter together, and I help them to label it. Now, if you're teaching a more mature group of students, you you may try allowing them to fill it out on their own first, using the verses that are suggested in the boxes. But it's kind of challenging. So we're going to just go through it together here, reading the verses and filling out the chart as we go. So I'll try to model how you could do that with your students here. So we'll pick it up in verse 2. And I saw the stars that they were very great, and that one of them was nearest unto the throne of God. And there were many great ones which were near unto it. So if we were to picture this, it looks something like this. First of all, right here in the center of our universe, we have a place called the throne of God. It doesn't say it's a star or a planet, so we'll just make it look like a giant throne. Certainly, God and his throne are somewhere physically out there in the universe. That is the place where God dwells. So let's label that the throne of God. But what is right next to the throne of God? One particular great star. And then what are surrounding it? Other great ones. So we can put a number of other smaller stars around that bigger one near the throne of God. Verse 3, And the Lord said unto me, These are the governing ones, and the name of the great one is Kolob, because it is near unto me. For I am the Lord thy God. I have set this one to govern all those which belong to the same order as that upon which thou standest. So now we can label this great star near the throne of God. It's called Kolob. And the other stars that surround it, we can also label. We're going to call them the governing ones. Now you tell me, in terms of stars and planets, what do you think he means by the word govern here? These stars are governed by the great star Kolob. What would be the word a modern astronomer would use? Because I would say that in our solar system, that the moon is governed by the earth, and the earth is governed by the sun. What does that mean? They orbit the other. The moon orbits the earth, and the earth orbits the sun. They're governed by them. They direct the path of the other heavenly body through time and space. Well, now he's going to zoom in to our particular solar system and the heavenly bodies that Abraham is most familiar with. So you've got the sun, the moon, and the earth. And we'll say that the sun is one of those great stars, those governing ones. And he's going to start talking about these heavenly bodies in terms of time. And this can get a little confusing, so let me walk you through it. And the Lord said unto me, by the Urim and Thummim, that Kolob was after the manner of the Lord, according to its times and seasons in the revolutions thereof. That one revolution was a day unto the Lord, after his manner of reckoning, it being one thousand years, according to the time appointed unto that whereon thou standest. This is the reckoning of the Lord's time, according to the reckoning of Kolob. So what's the measurement of time for Kolob and the throne of God as compared to earth? They share the same time. It's a thousand years. One revolution of Kolob would be a thousand years here on earth. Now moving on, verse 5. And the Lord said unto me, The planet, which is the lesser light, lesser than that which is to rule the day, even the night, is above or greater than that upon which thou standest, in point of reckoning. 
for it moveth in order more slow. So what are we talking about here? What is the lesser light that rules the night? We're talking about the moon. This is in order because it standeth above the earth upon which thou standest. Therefore, the reckoning of its time is not so many as to its number of days and of months and of years. And the Lord said unto me, Now, Abraham, these two facts exist. Behold, thine eyes see it. It is given unto thee to know the times of reckoning and the set time, yea, the set time of the earth upon which thou standest and the set time of the greater light, which is set to rule the day, that would be the sun, and the set time of the lesser light, which is set to rule the night, the moon. Now the set time of the lesser light is a longer time as to its reckoning than the reckoning of the time of the earth upon which thou standest. So the reckoning of time for the sun, the moon, and the earth is not so many as Kolob. So let me ask you, what are the reckonings of time for each of those? What is the reckoning or the measurement of time for the sun compared to the earth? One year. One revolution of the earth around the sun is measured as a year. What is the reckoning of time for the moon? One month. The moon goes through its phases over the course of about one month. That's where we get the term month. And what is the reckoning of time for the earth? One day. One revolution of the earth itself is measured as one day. Now, verses 8 through 9 are going to sum up the main points of this object lesson nicely. And where these two facts exist, there shall be another fact above them. That is, there shall be another planet whose reckoning of time shall be longer still. And thus there shall be the reckoning of the time of one planet above another, until thou come nigh unto Kolob which Kolob is after the reckoning of the Lord's time, which Kolob is set nigh unto the throne of God to govern all those planets which belong to the same order as that upon which thou standest. So we have our lovely visual here, the throne of God which governs with Kolob everything else in the universe. Then you have the governing ones, which would suggest that there are others that they are governing, since they're called governing ones. And you've got sun, moon, and earth out here around one of those governing ones. And their reckoning of time increases the closer you get to Kolob and the throne of God. Day, month, year, a thousand years. It just increases as you get closer to the throne of God. Now we could continue with verses 10 through 17, and you could do that with your students as well. But I think what we've established here is enough to make the point and help us to understand the object lesson. The other verses reiterate what we've learned here. But before we go on, let's list everything that we can learn about these elements. First, what do we know about Kolob? From verse 2, it's nearest to the throne of God. From verse 3, again, it's near unto me, or God. Also from verse 3, it governs all the other stars. From verse 4, its time is the same as that of the throne of God, a thousand years. And then from verse 16, we can add one. It is the greatest of all stars. And the reason why it's so great is because it is nearest to the throne of God. And then this is cool. We can also get a few more details by reading the description of facsimile number two. 
those interesting Egyptian-looking pictures that we find in the book of Abraham. Read the description for figure number one, from facsimile number two. And there we learn that Kolob was the first creation, and also that it is first in government, and last pertaining to the measurement of time. Okay, next, what do we know about the governing ones now? From verse 2, they're also great. From verse 3, they govern. And also from verse 3, they are governed by Kolob. So they orbit Kolob, but others orbit them. From verse 10, we can add something. We know their purpose. They are set to give light. Makes sense. They're stars. And also from facsimile number two, figure five tells us that they borrow their light from Kolob. So Kolob is the source of their light. Okay, now you might be wondering what this has to do with anything. You might be like, what in the world are we talking about here? Well, this is where it gets really cool, really fun. God is about to reveal the meaning behind the object lesson. There's going to be a shift. We're going to shift from Astronomy 101 to Religion 101. That happens in verse 18. We're not going to talk about planets and time anymore, but something else. Verse 18, how be it that he made the greater star as also if there be two spirits and one shall be more intelligent than the other. Yet these two spirits, notwithstanding one is more intelligent than the other, have no beginning. They existed before, they shall have no end, they shall exist after, for they are genolum or eternal. All right, so instead of stars and planets, what we're really talking about here are spirits or beings, and instead of time, we're talking about intelligence. So put that key somewhere on the page. Planets equals spirits, and time equals intelligence. Verse 19, And the Lord said unto me, These two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. So there's the key to the whole object lesson. He's given us the interpretation of some of those spirits. There in the middle, the throne of God represents a spirit. Who? And that one's easy. It's the throne of God, so it represents God, God the Father. But who is Kolob? A spirit just like God, right next to him? Kolob is Jesus. And does that work with the symbolism? Yes, and this is so fun. Now just go through that previous list that we made from verses 2 and 3. Is Jesus the nearest to God? The nearest thing that we have to God? Yes. Does he govern all the other stars? Yes. Is his time or his intelligence the same as that of God? Yes. Is he the greatest of all the stars or the beings? And is the reason that he's so great is because he's the closest to being like God? Yes. Was he the first creation? Yes. Jesus was the firstborn spirit child of our heavenly parents. And is he the first in government or the highest in authority? 
Yes. And is he the last pertaining to the measurement of time, or the greatest or longest in terms of intelligence? Yes. This is part of the reason one of Christ's titles is the first and the last, or in other words, the highest and the greatest. Isn't that cool? Now, verse 21 is going to put an exclamation point on that idea. But as you read it, can you find the orbit word? Which word suggests the idea of orbiting or governing? I dwell in the midst of them all. I now therefore have come down unto thee to declare unto thee the works which my hands have made, wherein my wisdom excelleth them all. For I rule in the heavens above and in the earth beneath in all wisdom and prudence over all the intelligences thine eyes have seen from the beginning. I came down in the beginning in the midst of all the intelligences thou hast seen. And the word is rule. God and Kolob rule or govern over all the universe. The rest of the spirits orbit or are governed by them. So let's keep going. How about these governing ones? Who are they? Well, let's take a look at our list again and see if you can guess. They're also great, and they govern others. At the same time that they're governed by Kolob. Verse 10, their purpose is to give light to all those other planets that surround them. And where do they get their light? They get it from Kolob or from Jesus. Then here's an interesting thing. There are 15 of them. So who are the governing ones? The prophets. Even the number 15 works there. How many prophets do we have on the earth with the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 combined? 15. Well, the sun then is going to represent one of the prophets. For example, our sun right now is Russell M. Nelson. And let's say that the earth represents us. And that makes sense since the earth is where mortals live. And all those other planets out there around the governing ones represent individual souls or beings out there. Now, I'm not quite sure what to do with the moon here, but perhaps that could represent local leaders. I leave that up to you to how you want to interpret that. And then what do you think with all this talk about time and the closer you get to Kolob, the greater the time? What does that teach us? Well, each planet or star increases in intelligence or light or truth the closer you get to Christ and God. Remember what the Doctrine and Covenants taught us in section 93, verse 36. The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. So the prophet has more intelligence or light and truth than your average person because they're closer to God. And Christ has even more because he's the closest to God. The closer to God, the more the intelligence. So part of the purpose of our lives here as God's planets is to seek to high to kolob or increase in intelligence and light and truth, to strive to be like Jesus. And how do we do that? By orbiting them, by allowing them to govern us. Now, with that as a background, maybe these more well-known verses at the end of Abraham 3 will take on some new meaning to you. Now, the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. 
So he's seeing all of God's spirit children gathered together in one great council. And among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones, the governing ones, God's future prophets and leaders. And God saw these souls that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them. So can you see our object lesson here? Jesus in the middle and all his prophets surrounding him, just like Kolob in the middle there with all the governing ones surrounding it. And Abraham is one of those governing ones. And he said, these I will make my rulers, my governors. For he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. So Abraham, you are one of my governing ones. You are one of those great stars out there. You're one of my prophets. You've been sent to this earth to give intelligence and direction and light to others. And that light has been given you from Christ. And there stood one among them that was like unto God. Kolob, right there next to God, or Jesus. And he said unto those who were with him, We will go down, for there is space there. And we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. These other planets, these other souls. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. Ah, so now we get to the meat of it. What is the purpose of all this creation? We're going to create a place, a planet, whereon all these beloved intelligences can dwell. And we're going to prove them, test them. And what's the big test? Will they do what their Lord commands them? In terms of the object lesson, will they orbit? Are they humble enough, meek enough, wise enough to trust the path that God has carved out for them through time and space? Will they follow his plan for them? Or will they choose their own path, choose to go their own way? And think about that for a second. What would be the result of that? What if the earth decided that it didn't want to follow the path that the sun has laid out for it? What if it said, I'm done with doing things this old son wants me to do. I want to make my own path in the universe. I want to do it my way. We've been following this old-fashioned orbit for millennia. I want to do something new and exciting, progressive. I'm sick of feeling controlled by this great governing light. What would happen to the earth if it said that? It made its way off on its own course in the solar system would get lost. It would die. It might collide with something else and be destroyed. And so will our intelligence and spirit if we veer off the path of light and order that's given to us through the prophets and Christ. And here's another cool truth to consider. If the governing ones are governed by Kolob, if the prophets orbit Jesus and God, then if I choose to orbit the prophet... Who else, by default, am I orbiting? I'm also orbiting Jesus and God. And what does the Lord promise to those who can learn how to orbit? And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon. And they who keep not their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. And they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. 
So our big truth here from our celestial object lesson, if I can learn to orbit or obey the prophets and Christ and God, then glory will be added upon me forever and ever. I will increase in glory, intelligence, light, and truth. I know that Abraham chapter 3 is usually used as a vehicle to teach us about our pre-mortal existence, which it does beautifully. But I'm not so sure that's the major thrust of the chapter. I believe the major message of Abraham 3 is follow the prophet and follow Jesus. The name of this very study program in the church is Come Follow Me. Can we learn how to orbit, to trust and follow the governing ones, those noble and great souls chosen by God before the creation of this earth to help give us light and direction? That's the real question. And that's my like in the scriptures question for you to consider. How's your orbit? How are you doing at following the prophets and Jesus? Have you listened to their words lately? Have you studied the words of the ancient prophets and the Savior in the scriptures? Do you strive to apply and live their counsel? Do you follow the path that they've carved out for you through time and space? Did you realize the night sky had so much to teach us? Think about that the next time you look up at night. When you look out and you see all that order and light and glory, ask yourself, am I traveling through space and time in the way the great star at the center of it all desires that I do? I promise you that if you will, you will never be lost. You will never travel in darkness. You will never die spiritually. Instead, you will increase in intelligence and light and truth. You will high or travel to Kolob and have glory added upon you forever and ever. That we may all be good planets is my hope and prayer. And that's all I have for you this week, my friends. Ah, it feels so good to get into the Old Testament. Just such great chapters right here from the very beginning. If you're interested in any of the resources that, that I make for teachers, the, the PowerPoint slides, uh, my lesson plans, um, handouts, just go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. And if this is the first time you've joined me and you're starting out with me in the Old Testament, welcome. I'm so glad you're with me. Please hit the subscribe button and the like or make a comment because all of those things are going to help the channel to grow. I hope you're excited to study the Old Testament this year, and I pray that I can in some way help you to get more out of it. Thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.